Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne writers Zara McDonald and Michelle Andrews. You wrote that, so you put my name first. I did. How are we? We're great. Coming up on today's (laughs) show, Kourtney Kardashian has a new venture and absolutely nobody is convinced by it. Justin Bieber jokes about pregnancy to suitable backlash and Married at First Sight's Mike says it's a hard time to be a man. (laughs) Let's unpack that. But first, Michelle, how has your week been going? We have been not as tired this week, which is great, which is a very unusual way of framing that sentence, but that's fine. I've been good preparing for a very impromptu trip to Sydney, which is not in my nature. Typically, when it comes to interstate trips, I kind of want to know like a month in advance where I'm going to be. But we just kind of turned to each other late last week or whatever and said, let's go to Sydney. Do you feel properly chill? Because I do. And you're so right. It's against my nature too. To have booked flats on a Friday for a Monday goes against everything (laughs) we stand for and who we are. Who are we? Not quite sure. But yeah, it's been a good week. Really excited to be in Sydney when this drops in the podcast podcast feed. I think we will be on our way on a plane to Sydney. So can't wait for that. And you have a fear, not a fear of flying, but you have a bit of a claustrophobia problem. Yes. Which you only learned this week. Yeah. So you always need to sit near what? The aisle or the window? I don't need to. I mean, I, I never want to be difficult about it, but I do. I really <laughs> struggle with claustrophobia a lot. So I always book the aisle. Right. And the last time I got a long haul flight, sorry, I, I don't think this story is relevant or interesting, but I've started. So no, I must keep going. I'm interested. The last time I got a, a long haul flight, I booked the aisle, but I suddenly got swapped and I, I was trying to ask to move away from the middle seat because the middle one's the worst, I think. And I couldn't. So it was 14 hours in the middle and I was just no good. Anyway, what else is going on with you? No, 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 but it is weird before you hate talking about yourself. So I'll just drag this out for as long as possible. (laughs) We've caught many flights together before, like at least eight. And I've never noticed that you have claustrophobia. So you must be very chill. Like 
externally chill, internally dying a little bit. Do you think that's my entire <laughs> demeanor? That's just Zara as a person. Uh, what else about my week? I do have a recommendation. I think this is one of my favorite recommendations actually of the year. I think I say that for every recommendation, but we'll just ignore that. How Nora McKinnery Gets It Done, an interview with Stella Bugby, which is the editor of The Cut. It's a podcast episode. I will put it in the show notes. It explores Nora's experience with grief. She lost her husband to brain cancer and five days later lost her father. And it explores what that's like. And I've never felt so many conflicting emotions at once. It also looks at how she fell in love quite quickly with another man after her husband's death and how people didn't see her grief as legitimate because she had moved on and fallen pregnant quite quickly. How was Stella Bugby in that interview? Great. Yeah, I can imagine her being quite emotionally intelligent in those kinds of settings. God, that seems like a lot. I will definitely listen to that because I listen to most episodes in their feed. So she's an author. She's an author. So she's written books about this grief and this experience. And she's also got a podcast that explores grief. And I think she runs a Facebook group called Hot Widows. And it's basically where women can come in and talk about the things that you're not really supposed to be feeling when you're grieving the death of your spouse. But highly, highly, highly recommend it. Added a lot of context and nuance to the discussion of grief. That sounds amazing. I will definitely listen to that. Your week, please tell me. I mean, I lived it with you, but tell everyone. Um, what did we do? We very publicly went to Bunnings, which was an absolute fail. I don't think there can be <laughs> a firmer example of the failure of feminism than to see Michelle and I walking the, I was going to say the streets, the aisles of Bunnings, trying to find like the most niche things. And I remember at one point we'd been there for probably 45 minutes and didn't have anything in our hands of what we needed. <laughs> And we needed to ask another question, but we had sort of accidentally already asked like almost every employee there. So we needed to go back for round two and and ask them all the question again. We had well and truly exhausted all of our question opportunities, but it was a little bit depressing. I also enjoyed all the tradies that would kind of do a double take as if there were two young women walking through Bunnings just having no fucking clue where anything was. What is it? Like Toto, we aren't in Kansas anymore. (laughs) We had no idea what we're doing. Um, But that was a highlight and low light of my week. Um, You also made me the best omelette I've ever had, I think. Oh, thank you. About two hours ago. I really appreciated that. You did buy all the ingredients, so I just threw them together. Omelettes aren't hard. (laughs) Um, My recommendation this week is an episode of The Daily. I'm very sorry. I know I always recommend The Daily and you never listen to the recommendations. (laughs) But there is a lot going on around Brexit at the moment. Um, A lot that's going over my head, I must admit. I think because there's so many developments every single day, when you don't live in the same time zone and you're trying to keep up with news just more generally, it's hard to keep up with politics that's not in your country. So there's a great episode on um, Theresa May and it's talking about how Theresa May came into power, how she's tried to negotiate Brexit, why she's going to be stepping down, how it's all sort of fallen down, the flaws of her as a leader. And I think it really nicely packages the last few years in a really simple way. You know what else as well on that thread of Brexit? Go follow JK Rowling on Twitter. Some of her Mm. commentary on Brexit has been really interesting as well as the squiz. I mean, every day they give you a brief synopsis and it's basically always, it's a fucking mess. We have nothing else to say. But that's the kind of sense that I keep getting around Brexit, you know, that it is a complete mess and nothing's getting through. But there was a little bit more nuance to it in the the episode of The Daily that helped me understand why nothing was getting through and why it's at such a standstill. Mm. Um, So if you are interested in that and if you feel like you want to know more but have 
absolutely no base knowledge, I would go and listen to it. Great. Before we get on to the first segment, I do want to give a bit of happy, shameless community news. Yes, let's do that. Just a little update for everyone. We didn't speak about this last week and all of the hype of the live show stuff. We forgot to mention it, but this community has actually raised $3,000 for the Bridging the Gap Foundation through buying the shameless merch. So we are doing our 2019 merch through Sweater Club Oz, which is actually a company, a small business owned by listener Colby. Colby's the best for she has been powering through these orders. You guys have absolutely inundated her with orders and she's sewing them by herself on her machine um, in Melbourne. So we have raised over $3,000. If you keep buying those t-shirts, that number is only going to inflate, which is a good thing. So keep buying them. We also started, and when I say we, it wasn't us. It was listener Ali who started a book club this week too. Mm -hmm, She did. She kind of went rogue in the group and said, guys, I want to create a book club. It got hundreds and hundreds of likes and Zara and I looked at it and went, you know what? The people want their book club. Ali wants her book club and we are going to give them their bloody book club. So there is another Facebook group for book club, which we have. <laughs> the funny thing about this is we created it and then left it to Ali to be like, all right, Ali, you've got all your book yours. club. There's your baby. We then looked back at it the next day thinking, oh, there will be a couple of hundred people. There are 2,000 shameless listeners now in this book club all organizing it together. So, I know, and I feel like they have run a, a much tighter more organized ship than we do in our own Facebook group. So I would recommend getting in there. Sorry, Ali, this is going to become your now full-time job. Let's actually get into the show this week because one of the the major things that is coming up on Instagram, on Facebook, on social media altogether is Courtney Kardashian's new venture. Do you want to say the name? Poosh. It's such a silly what name. What the fuck is that? So Poosh is actually kind of a spin-off on the nickname for her daughter, Penelope. So apparently she calls her Poosh. But why pick one child when you've got three? She has three, right? I don't know. You know what I'm also really enjoying are all the puns that they're using with Poosh already. It's like, give your health and wellness the Poosh it needs. (laughs) Inspired. (laughs) Inspired, Courtney. Give us more. It's not working. I found initially I found interesting Poosh with the double O. I remember when Gwyneth Paltrow gave that interview. Who was it with? I was actually about to bring this up. She gave an interview with the New York Times saying that all the successful internet companies have double O's. She also said in a 2009 USA Today interview that she wanted a word that means nothing and could mean anything. So she went for Goop, Google. Have we got any other big companies that have a double O? Facebook? Facebook. (laughs) Yeah, but that doesn't really count, surely. It doesn't. But clearly Courtney has heard this interview last year in the New York Times and gone, oh, great, I'll just call my company Poosh. I want to start with the content first and foremost because Mm -hmm. I think that is copying – Uh, important backlash. There is a a few weird stories on that website. I don't know how deep you went, Michelle. First one I saw was how to look good naked. (gasps) Can we talk about this for a second? Because this was potentially the stupidest, most lackluster article. Like I get that it's annoying, number one, to say how to look good naked. Like that's an annoying topic to begin with. It's even more annoying when you click into the article like I did because I was genuinely curious as to what they were going to tell me. Yeah. Do you want to know the tips? No, I know. I wrote one down. (laughs) My favorite one was make sure you're in the right lighting. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, 
Only light candles. That's apparently the tip. Just make the room as dark as possible and everyone will think you look great. It's amazing. They said, yeah, lighting is important. It hides your cellulite. So if you only turn on candles and it's all really dark, you're fine, which is great. If we're all invisible, we all look beautiful. Hot tip. None of us, like you can't see any of your cellulite in pitch black darkness. On a more serious note, it did make me think whether there is still room for unhelpful content for women. Like do women still want to feel bad about themselves? I know magazine culture in the last, you know, few years has been trying to move away from making women feel terrible about themselves. But is there still a market for that? Well, is there still a market for telling women that if they stand up taller, they'll look better? Otherwise, they can drink lots of water and wear body cream. That's what I mean. Is there a market for this? Um, I think there is. I don't think they're shameless listeners. It's interesting. I think she might have missed the boat. I don't know if nah, you're wrong. Do you reckon? I, I mean, in an ideal world, there wouldn't be people who want this content. But when women are constantly being told that they're not good enough and they need to look good naked, obviously a huge proportion of women are going to feel that and experience that and internalize that. So it's no yeah. surprise that these things, particularly group, group has been a major worldwide success. There's a reason for that. No, you're right. I was wrong. You're absolutely right. <laughs> that was very easy. I'm more, yeah, I'm not usually this easy. Maybe I'm just in a generous mood. Um, <laughs> the other more serious question I had about this for you is why a lifestyle website now? It very much seems like the lifestyle website boat has sailed. I agree. I think blogs in general have sailed a little bit. I mean, I've said this to you before and you think that's quite arrogant No, I don't. No, no. It's because you phrased it, websites are dead. (laughs) Websites are definitely not dead. But personal blogs are dead, in my opinion. There's not a whole lot to them. They almost feel a little bit one-dimensional. There's not enough depth there that you can get from just a blog with no video content, no audio content. Well, it feels like an oversaturated market and it also feels like it's hard to sort of uh, get articles to get clicks and traction these days. When algor- when when these kinds of blogs are so at the mercy of, of algorithms, it's hard for them to sort of actually get the clicks they need to generate revenue. Absolutely. I really liked The Guardian's take on this, saying that it's the most predictable thing a rich, bored celebrity can do. That Guardian story, which again, I'll link in the show notes, also looked at the fact that we've already seen lifestyle blogs, not just from Gwyneth Paltrow, but Reese Witherspoon, Catherine Schwarzenegger, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Julianne Hugh, Jessica Alba, Alicia Silverstone. Like there is already this shit on the internet. What about Blake Lively? She had to shut hers down, remember? Oh, really? That didn't last very long. The Washington Post wrote a a pretty great article about this too. It was very tongue-in-cheek, a little bit snarky, but I didn't mind it. Sonia Rao wrote one of the weirdest things for her about the launch of this blog was... Um, Courtney claiming that healthy living gets a bad rap. It's as though if you care about what you put in or on your body, then you're not as sexy or cool. And Sonia Rao just said, literally, who says this? (laughs) Nobody. Like that is absolute fake news. That's not a thing that people actually think or ever say. If anything, it's the opposite. Yeah, I agree. Where I do want to take this conversation, because we know that the content on this website isn't amazing. But another thing we know about it is that it's Almost definitely not written by Courtney Kardashian. You don't reckon Courtney's sitting there with her little fingers and her Mac typing away? Little fingers. She probably does have little fingers. She She's quite short statured. She had the daintiest fingers, but onwards. <laughs> I think it's worthwhile to discuss the fact that this website in its entirety almost definitely has a ghostwriter behind it yep. or ghostwriters. Because there's no byline. So for every article that I've seen so far, bar one, and I haven't read every article on the site. I'm sorry. How dare you? But I have better things to be doing. <laughs> Not really. I actually don't have better things to be doing with my time. But the, the byline is always by push. So it's clearly um, some sort of copywriter in the team. 
I, I'm interested in whether people care about this. I know on a scale of things in the world we can care about, this doesn't rank highly. But I do think there's an interesting idea in celebrities that do use other people to write their work but never claim to do so. Yeah, see, I wonder if we disagree on this because I actually don't have an issue at all with ghostwriters. I've done a bit of ghostwriting work in my career as well. I think you can put a negative spin on it in that a lot of celebrities don't point to their ghostwriters. For example, Snooki from Jersey Shore was caught out lying about the fact that she had a ghostwriter. I think it was a year or two ago. When she was pressed, she said, oh, I wrote it. And apparently the publisher later came out and said, actually, that's not the truth. There is a small issue there. However, I do not have any issue with ghostwriting as a practice in general because I think when the book industry is struggling and celebrity-written biographies are performing the best out of almost any genre, it's good for people to be buying books and I don't think ghostwriting really damages the overall quality of the story being told. No, I agree with you. Um, maybe much to your own surprise. Uh, I think it's good for the industry to have books that are selling. I also think it's good for the industry to have writers who are being employed. I wouldn't, I would love to go try a celebrity's book. Like Mm. as a writer, I don't mind so much if my name's not on it. I think it's all about managing expectations in this kind of era and saying um, it was co-written. We wrote it together, which is more accurate. I know Zoella, um, the UK blogger, you pointed me to this. Mm. When she released her first book, uh, Girl Online, was it? In 2014. She didn't say that it was ghostwritten, but put a credit in the acknowledgements and everybody started putting two and two together. And there was a massive um, backlash about that. Mm. In an interview, Zoe Sugg's ghostwriter, whose name is Siobhan Kerum, Mm-hmm. said, whether you like it or not, this is the financial reality of today's publishing industry. And I agree with that. The only issue I have around sort of this Zoella thing, which happened a few years ago, but I think is still relevant, um, was touched on in The Independent by a writer called Lucy Hunter-Johnson, who said, failing to credit Siobhan as an author reduces the actual writing of the book to the lowest denominator in the creative process. The words inside matter less than those on the cover, a gloomy indication of the state of the public industry. So that's where I feel conflicted in that I understand realistically that that for us to sell books and this is not new like this has been going on for years mm. ghostwriters are important but it does it does raise an interesting point are we more fa- are we more focused on the cover than the words is that projecting though potentially well, Siobhan also said she loved being the ghostwriter yeah. for that book and she really enjoyed it and to give context as well to this discussion, uh, there was a literary agent, Madeline Morell, who told NPR a few years ago that actually about 60% of nonfiction books are written by ghostwriters. So this is the norm. Totally. The majority of nonfiction books you guys are seeing on bookstands probably weren't written by the name on the front cover. But are we projecting to say that, oh, this is the end of, I don't know, good literary practice as we know it? Who's saying that? The quote that you just gave kind of indicated that. Well, in my opinion, that quote says more about that we have never cared as much about the words, that we are caring about the cover, but it's not the end of the industry. It's maybe just saying it's where our priorities lie. Maybe. I don't know. I think that a lot of ghostwriters are very happy, first of all, to be paid for their writing. It's extremely lucrative. Ghostwriting can be very, very well paid. But also, I don't think all creatives want their names on the front of a book. Some creatives really like being able to just do their craft and not have the attention and limelight that comes with that. And a lot of the interviews that I read from creatives and from writers said one of the biggest perks of doing what they do is that their name isn't on the cover. So whether we like it or not, this is how the industry works. And I just think it's an interesting conversation. I mean, I don't think we're talking a lot about books right now, but... 
I don't think Kourtney Kardashian necessarily needs to come out and say all these articles are being written by other people. It's just something to be cognizant of. I don't think there'll ever be backlash about articles under the Kourtney Kardashian brand that are not written by Kardashian herself because I don't think we actually expect her to have written them. I think in the case of someone like Zoella, if you build a brand on authenticity and you sell them a book, young girls a book, they actually probably think you wrote those words. So it is about managing those expectations and thinking what is the consumer expecting here and how do I need to be transparent in my communication around that project? Yeah, I can imagine it would be very frustrating as well if someone like Zoella was doing vlogs talking about how many hours they poured into some project that they didn't really. Yeah, that's true. Just don't go above and beyond about it. Don't Mm. say you wrote the full thing if you didn't. Just don't lie. I don't think you need to tell the whole truth, but you also don't need to lie in these scenarios either. I agree. Thank you, next bitch. And now it's time for the quick and dirty. Every week we bring you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity news cycle. Zara, it's your go today. It's my go. (laughs) It is my go. The first story on my list, and this is not my story, it's yours. Captain Marvel smashes $1 billion milestone at Global Box Office. That is from Variety. Can you give me background on that story? Well, this is one of the first female-led superhero films that has smashed the $1 billion mark, and I just thought that was awesome. Brie Larson is obviously the protagonist in that film, and there are a lot of skeptics when it comes to women playing traditional male roles but I think this shows everything up and it shows that it does work and that women belong in the center stage who would have thought women are lucrative they make people money I like that story I have to say number two Britney Spears' sons are staying with dad Kevin Federline while she receives help that is from people magazine The conversation around this story has been super interesting to me. So Mm. Britney Spears has been admitted into a mental health facility, but a lot of the commentary around it, particularly out of her own team and her, I guess her corner, is that this is some type of spiritual, soulful exploration, that it's not mental health, which is curious Uh, in an era when we as a society are so accepting of people with mental illness I do find it curious that Britney Spears hasn't attached that label to it when she is in a mental illness facility. I agree with you. There's something interesting about how we consider Britney Spears' mental health. Um, I don't want to say journey, um, but I that's kind that of is, that is that what is, it is. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, the word journey is just so derided these days. <laughs> but there is something interesting about how we consider her in comparison to almost anyone else, and I wonder if it's because. The, the the absolute peak of some of her public breakdowns happened at a time when we weren't as accepting. Mm. So we've still kind of got this subconscious way we consider her in our head or this brand that we've got of her in our head that's almost a tiny bit unhinged. Yeah. That's the sense that I've got around her, maybe because it happened in a time where we weren't as accepting and we haven't been able to move past that. I don't know if that's the case, but that's the only thing I can possibly think of as to why we're not as accepting about her as we are with other people. Yeah, and the caricature of... Britney Spears' mental illness is the umbrella image and the bald head image. And I don't think we've been able to move past that. And I don't think she's been able to move past that in being accepting of the fact that she's really struggling. For her to come out and say, oh, I'm just I'm just going to this spiritual awakening ceremony or whatever terminology she's using shows that she probably still feels humiliated, which is so depressing because this is serious and it should be allowed to be spoken about as an illness. Is it that surprising too when we consider that meme of Britney with the umbrella and I think that caption is something generally like if Britney can get through 2008, 2008, you can get through today. Mm. Uh, I mean, 
I feel like if that's still circulating and is still sort of at the center of our pop culture conversations and our, our time online, then we still can't see her as anything other than a woman who once broke down. Yeah, I agree. It is really sad though. I think it'll be interesting to see how the media deals with this if they deal with it in a responsible way. Mm. Number three, Natalie Joyce has turned a nightmare into a triumph. That is from the Sydney Morning Herald. This is awesome. The photos of uh, Natalie Joyce competing at a bodybuilding competition were put in our Facebook group. And I scrolled past not connecting the dots. And I know you did this as well. Mm. It wasn't until I'd scrolled past where my mind kind of caught up. And I went, wait, is that Natalie Joyce in the bikini? Like Barnaby Joyce's ex-wife. I can't believe how amazing she looks. She looks amazing. So she is um, competing in bodybuilding competitions. Such were the photos published in the Sydney Morning Herald this week. We got an interesting DM from a listener who read that op-ed by Casey Edwards in the SMH and said that they didn't like it very much. Um, I don't know why some people didn't like that piece. I think it's because this idea that when women break up with men or when women are sort of... uh, dumped for lack of a better Mm. word by a man we somehow put all of this emphasis on their appearance I guess Mm. like this idea that when uh, a woman goes through a breakup she cuts her hair but I I had no issue with this for me it was far more symbolic than about aesthetics and we haven't made that link she's made that link she's going to a public competition where there are photographers and she's giving interviews about it so it's not like we're the ones beginning the story she's sparking and igniting that public interest but i'm sorry we should have done this at the very beginning <laughs> of the segment but if you're listening to this going who the fuck is barnaby and natalie joyce barnaby joyce is an australian uh politician who publicly cheated on his wife and ended up having a baby with his staffer while still married that's about it and so natalie joyce has been very um cordial very cordial, very dignified in the entire thing, has just come out at a bodybuilding contest. And for me, like I said, it is far more about the symbolism and the metaphor than anything aesthetic. Also, the fact that it's bodybuilding. This is an image of a strong, yeah, powerful exactly. body and strong, powerful woman. It's not as if she's dropped 15 kilograms and that's the commentary. The commentary is, look at how much she's been working on herself. Look at how much she has built herself up literally she's physically stronger now which i like the sound of that i'm becoming increasingly concerned as well that you're holding onto my lip gloss as if it's yours and i'm worried that i will never get that back i often hold things while we record because i need my hands to be busy but i will give this back to you now i always get stuff confiscated from me mid-episode and i always lose lip products halfway like when i've just fallen in love with them they suddenly disappear and now i've got a theory as to where they're all going (laughs) continue (laughs) number four kendall jenner reportedly earned five hundred thousand dollars for her appearance at a sydney store opening that's from nine news i have to say five hundred thousand dollars doesn't sound like much when it comes to kendall jenner what when it comes to kendall jenner nah, disagree can you give me context i have absolutely no idea what this story is about so kendall jenner flew into sydney for 24 hours i would she... too for five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> mate i'd be here for a minute um she went to the tiffany and co store opening in sydney and was reportedly paid half a million dollars for that appearance. Um, it did generate a lot of publicity. I mean, if, if Tiffany & Co. have got that money, spend it. I don't, not enough for me to hear about well, it. this is also true. Maybe not <laughs> enough publicity. Um, but five, I have to say, I looked at that $500,000 figure and I, I think the reason I thought it wasn't much is because I hear that like Kylie Jenner gets a million dollars for promoting something on Instagram, which is one post. So to fly halfway across the world for 24 hours... I mean, if I was Kendall Jenner, I'd be upping my quote, but that's just me. (laughs) Number five, a UK driving instructor says Meghan Markle and Prince Harry stole his Instagram name. That is from news.com. Again, what is this? 
So interesting timing. As the stories <laughs> around Prince William started to swirl that we touched on in last week's episode about mm. his alleged affair with a friend of Kate Middleton, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry pop up on Instagram with their own Instagram called Royal Sussex or Sussex Royal, one of the two. Mm. This poor UK driving instructor says he just logged on to Instagram one day and realized his Instagram handle had been changed to have like two underscores in it because the royals had just (laughs) swooped in and taken their own. Um, So this poor guy is actually getting a lot of airtime at the moment because he owned the original username. I've got to say, Zara, when we were discussing this episode, you said to me, oh, I've got this really funny story about a man who sang for the world record. And I said, that's not very funny, but I kind of wish you put that in now. Okay, do you want me to tell you that story? It's because I couldn't find an English headline, but I heard the story on the news. So this is post number six with absolutely no headline and just my explanation. So there was a guy. This episode is so rude. I know. There was a guy in the Dominican Republic who sung. (laughs) Sorry. He sung. It's not even going to be a funny story now. He sung for 106 hours to break the Guinness World Book of Records um, record for the longest amount of time singing. And so he was presented with the trophy because he broke the record. And then it came out a few hours later that he was disqualified because after 106 hours, he took a two minute break when it should have been 30 seconds. So it was stripped from him. So poor little, I think his name was Carlos. Poor Carlos. How many days is that? 106 hours. Quick maths. Oh no. Less than five. Slightly less than five. This is not where we're going to shine in the (laughs) podcast. So that's my sixth story with no headline. I couldn't find a headline in English, but it was a funny story. Okay. Is that all for today's cricket? I thought it was funny. (laughs) Yeah, that's all we've got. I apologize. (laughs) Jesus. It was April Fool's Day this week and Justin Bieber decided to really go for it. We're having a baby, he said in no uncertain terms, with a couple of fake ultrasound photos to go along with it. He later confirmed that yes, it was just a prank, but it didn't stop thousands of commenters coming for him. It was hurtful, it was unnecessary, they said, and pregnancy jokes on April Fool's Day just aren't funny anymore. Michelle, how did you feel about the fallout? conflicted and very nervous because I know that this is a super sensitive topic and I do want to, I guess, preface with anything that I do say in this topic that nothing that I'm saying is coming from a, like a malicious place and I do not want to upset anyone and I totally understand that this is a precarious topic and one that needs to be treated with respect, particularly pregnancy jokes, because while I have no idea about my own fertility, I don't have a reason to suspect that I will ever be infertile. And therefore, I'm approaching everything that I say here from a place of privilege, which really needs to be addressed. So I want to get that across first. Um, I will not lie. Like if I'm being completely honest in myself, I do feel like the backlash against Justin Bieber was disproportionate to what he did. I don't necessarily think it was entirely fair. I don't... See, I'm struggling because I'm already thinking of people listening to this and being really upset with what I say. I guess what I really want to get across is I don't think Justin Bieber said this joke or made this joke with malice and therefore it was hard to see people come back at him with malice. I think backlash is always disproportionate, Um, whatever a person does. Like I never feel like the backlash is proportionate to the joke that was had. Um, I'm not even sure intention 
is important here. I mean, I know we talk a lot about what were their intentions. Are they trying to be a nice person? Are they trying to be a mean person? And of course, I'd always like it to be flagged. Like Justin Bieber didn't mean to make people upset who are already probably having a hard time. I think we can acknowledge that and and infuse our commentary with empathy, which I think we both we will. Um, I don't think people on the internet are that kind. I think because of that, we can infuse our commentary with empathy, but. I don't think intention is is that important. I think it's still important that we call call stuff out so that that people learn. Like you can mm. have good intentions and keep mucking up. And if we don't call that out, then you'll keep mucking up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. See, it's a really, really hard one because when it comes to pregnancy jokes on April Fool's, first of all, I don't think they're clever or original. No. So I don't <laughs> want to go on this podcast and defend the quality of Justin Bieber's April Fool's prank because it – it wasn't inspired. It wasn't particularly funny. I guess with pregnancy jokes, they're always about shock value. I personally would never make a pregnancy joke because infertility and pregnancy loss has touched those closest to me. My mum actually lost my sister Jennifer in the year before I was born or the year and a half before I was born. She had a number of miscarriages, which she's always spoken about because they affected her so much. I've got girlfriends who have miscarried. My sister is a midwife who deals with pregnancy loss on a weekly basis. That said, I do actually think intention's important here. I know you disagree, but I don't think people who make pregnancy jokes, particularly on April April Fool's, intend to hurt people. And I also don't think they intend to say anything about anyone else. When you make a pregnancy joke, I imagine you are thinking of your own relationship and your own relationship with your family members and friends and how that might be surprising and funny and uh, I, don't, I don't know, out of this world for them to imagine that you're pregnant. You're not talking about other people's journeys. And my concern with this backlash anytime a pregnancy joke is made is that it's not actually about you and it's not about you personally when someone jokes about pregnancy. Although it might really uh, uh, play on something that you've been really struggling with and I acknowledge that that would be hard, we actually can't put ourselves at the center of other people's jokes because they're not about you. I think if we use that logic, though, we'd find ourselves in a world of strife. So I think for me, time and place is important here. I think there's a difference between joking in a stand-up routine if you're a comedian and putting something on Instagram that's a joke. So for me, those two things are completely different. I think some places are sanitized from PC crusades and almost should be. And I think that is sort of a a comedy arena where there is a stand-up and you can kind of, you know, walking into that room what you're going in for. Whereas if you're scrolling on Instagram, I don't think that's that. That's what you signed up for. That's what you're in for. And I think for me, that's how I separate these these two things. I don't think it's actually that appropriate now to joke about pregnancy on Instagram. And I say that not because I was upset when I saw that image. I didn't feel anything at all. I didn't think it was funny or I didn't think it was sad. But I, I am preemptively... I I preemptively get my back up because I do have pretty severe endometriosis and I've written about it only once before about how the conversation around young women and fertility almost doesn't exist. That as a young woman who has no idea what her fertility is going to be or what it's going to look like or whether I'm ever going to be able to have children, that, that no one will allow me to have that conversation until I have kids. So I think when we've had this conversation, we've only touched on it very slightly, um, in the last week, I think my back is preemptively up for the time that I might see an announcement like that and be going through a hard time. I do joke about pregnancy all the time in a really intimate way. I mean, I joke about it all the time with my sister. If we're sitting around with her and her boyfriend and my whole family and they say, 
they want to like tell us something, I'll be the first to jump in and say, oh yeah, mum and dad, they're pregnant. Um, Because I think in those cases, it is funny in your own context. It is funny on a public stage. I don't know if it is funny or that necessary. Mm. Like that's what gets me. I just don't see what, why it's necessary. Like, and I don't think that us taking that away. So us saying on April Fool's Day, maybe don't joke about pregnancy, whether that is actually hurting anybody or making anybody feel like their rights are being impinged on. I get that. I I guess I feel slightly confused in myself because there are a lot of memes around that say things like, not a baby, it's a burger in my belly. And we respond really positively to those memes. I've never seen any backlash to memes like that. We we do have a tendency when it comes to pregnancy because it is such a seminal part of so many people's existences. We do have a tendency to make other people's pregnancies and other people's experiences with pregnancies about us. And I say that because Amy Schumer's Netflix special came out recently and she got huge backlash to a comment in that special. She's pregnant at the moment. And she said, if you're someone who enjoyed being pregnant, I hope your car flips over. And people were really, really furious about that. But I get, and, they, and a lot of people do come back when you talk negatively about pregnancy or you say that you didn't enjoy pregnancy or you say that you don't enjoy early motherhood. Lots of women say, well, at least you could fall pregnant. I can't fall pregnant. And there's a lot of projection on that saying, well, I can't do this. So how dare you talk negatively about it? And of course, as always, I want to say again, I'm coming from a point of privilege and I really sympathize no, with anyone who's Michelle, had that. I agree with you. Like I agree with that. And I think in the case of Amy Schumer, that's kind of royally unfair. First yeah. and foremost, she te- she sells that entire stand-up routine on being pregnant. So you know, going into that stand-up routine, what you're going to get. And I, I think there should be room to have conversations about how in some cases, pregnancy can be really bloody hard. I think all of these cases are almost a bit different. Like, I just don't see what Justin Bieber is gaining from joking about being pregnant, whereas a woman who is talking about having a really tough pregnancy is going to gain something by having a conversation publicly mm. about that. Do you see the difference between yeah, those Yeah, I do. Two? I do. And I think people might be listening to this going, well, if Michelle's saying it's not about you, what about racist jokes? Or what about homophobic jokes? Jokes. And the difference I see there is that racist, homophobic, and transphobic jokes all carry hatred. They carry some level of discrimination and malice, whereas jokes about pregnancy are just tactless. They're not particularly thoughtful, and that's the difference here And that maybe Justin Bieber and Hayley Bieber have never met someone who lost a baby or never met someone who's spoken openly about losing a pregnancy. So maybe they're ignorant. I don't think it's the same when someone jokes about pregnancy and says, oh, we're pregnant, jokes we're not, or jokes it's a burger, or jokes she's just a bit bloated today. It's not the same as making a joke about someone's skin color or ethnicity or the actual life that they were born into. There's a very clear, distinct difference there. So I do feel, honestly, I just do feel when we have this conversation, we do have it every April Fool's Day, it's a little bit too much to take it to the point where saying people can never make jokes about pregnancy because there are so many jokes about pregnancy on the internet. And I do get confused about what's suddenly okay and what's not okay. And that's not to say that we can't have the conversation. I think conversations like this are super, super helpful. But ultimately, a lot of jokes are there to shock and disarm, jokes about suicide and jokes about really dark points in life. And it does help sometimes to be able to put yourself, I guess, take yourself to a bird's eye view and observe the joke and observe why some people might find that funny, but how it doesn't have to be a criticism or an observation or making any kind of point about you. I think you're confusing 
I think you're you're assuming that all jokes are made equal and all jokes serve the same purpose. So for me, a, a maybe a really dark joke about suicide or a really dark joke about something else actually does serve a purpose in certain contexts. I don't think, and I think the broader point that I'm trying to make in this segment, I don't think a flippant pregnancy joke serves any purpose. And that's the difference for me. Like I, I don't think that telling people not to joke about this stuff on an international scale is a big deal. I don't think we're impinging on freedom of speech. I don't think it's entrapping us in some kind of PC prism. I also don't think there's any ongoing and large implications for having to say, don't joke about pregnancy on it on April Fool's Day. I think having this conversation about comedians and comedy and Justin Bieber is different. If you're telling a comedian he or she can't say something, that does have much broader implications for the state of comedy and the livelihood of an entire industry than it does for saying on April Fool's Day, let's not just not joke about pregnancy. Going back to your earlier point when you said it's not infused with like malice or nastiness, I also agree with that. It is tactless and it is ignorant, but I also think, I also kind of think that matters. Like I think on April Fool's Day, it's important to go gently. And I think that's the age old concept that I do try to live by and I I don't always get right, but it is this idea both online and in real life to go gently, like notice people, don't go too quickly, don't break too many things, be observant. I, I I don't think life is about, or this conversation specifically is about being confined by what you can and can't say, but by looking and listening and understanding what makes other people feel and hurt and tick. And if if not saying one thing, if being sort of quote unquote banned from saying one thing is going to make a few people less hurt, I don't see the downside to that if the quote itself or, you know, the joke itself wasn't even that funny or didn't serve a purpose in the first place? No, I get I get your point totally. I think what I'm coming to this segment with is that I just want us to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. I don't I think once someone makes this mistake, then you're not gonna make this mistake twice, number one. No one's gonna try and make a April it is Fool's pregnancy Bieber. twice. I mean his swag is undeniable. <laughs> I don't think he's gonna do this twice. I think we just need to give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes. Okay, go to them and try and educate them as to why it's upsetting and why it's hurtful. But I think the the level of fuel to this fire is not productive in this instance. And it is possible to go to people who make this mistake and just give them the benefit of the doubt. People screw up. People don't intend to upset you. Particularly, Justin Bieber would never intend to make someone else feel bad about not being able to fall pregnant or not being able to have a baby. I agree with that 1000%. I'm interested in how you think this conversation should have happened then. I just, I just think because the the he needed to be, we needed to have this conversation. Mm. I think it's important that we mm. had this conversation. I think it's important that people told him, "Hey, that's not that cool. This is why." But that's not the language. But that, that so never many happens. Use. Like I know that's, we would live in a fairy tale land if if every time someone mucked up, we came at them from this really respectful, empathetic place and said, "Justin, I know you meant well, <laughs> but this is why it's a honey. Fancy. Just this way is the way." No, I don't get it. But this is why we have the podcast. Yeah, right? totally. That we can talk about these things with nuance, and I think it is interesting to hear your perspective but also other women's perspectives all the time at the end of the day it was an unoriginal joke (laughs) it's not funny (laughs) it's not really funny there's nothing to it it's tactless but it's also something that I think wasn't with malice and wasn't with cruel intentions at heart but that said please do come and share your thoughts with us particularly me because I know I probably do have the unpopular point of view with this I don't know if you will truly Mm. I don't think you will well I do wonder if lots of people have been wondering is this really that bad without wanting to say it because if you do say what I've said online in a little soundbite or in a quote, 
I do think the backlash, if I wrote this in the Facebook group, would be very different to how I'm illustrating my I point totally of view agree. now. And also I don't think it's something, because we've we've had this discussion, I mean, off air, in that you don't know what your fertility is going to look like, so it's never really crossed your mind. And I have said pretty openly that my back is preemptively up, which I don't even think is a good way to go about life, to have my back preemptively up. <laughs> You're for ready something, to fight. <laughs> yeah, but for something that may or may not occur. But I think because those thoughts are constantly in my mind, and I have to say, I think about that every single day, about whether that will be something that I will be able to do. You feel these kinds of stories more deeply, but that doesn't mean that you come from it from a more uh, correct or even rational line of thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do come and share your thoughts with us. We'd love to hear them. Well, well, well. This week, after months of being dubbed a gaslighter and emotional abuser by thousands of Married at First Sight viewers, contestant Mike Gunnar took to the media with guns blazing. In an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald, Gunnar said that he is not a narcissist or a bad partner, but rather that toxic feminism is to blame for Australia's reaction to his behaviour. Zara, do you agree? <laughs> I have to say, toxic feminism is the uh, is to blame for all issues in the yeah, world. This podcast in particular. Don't you agree? Okay, <laughs> okay I am actually not a Married at First Sight fan. I've said that probably enough on this podcast. Um, but I have tried to do my reading about Mike and watch quite a few clips of his before this segment. Um, do I think that toxic feminism, to answer your question, is to blame for Australia's reaction to his behaviour? Uh, at a glance, no. What do you think? <laughs> also no. Shocking, I know. For anyone who is listening to this again or from overseas, we'll give you some backstory to this. Mike is on Married at First Sight. He is married to Heidi. His behavior on the show has received a whole lot of condemnation, particularly on online media publications, in that he often has arguments with Heidi and in almost every case has framed the argument after the fact as Heidi's problem and as if Heidi is the source of all issues in their relationship. Sounds like a healthy relationship. Yeah. He also does things like when he's fighting with women, he comments a lot on women's appearances, particularly one contestant's lips. He does this thing when he's disagreeing with them. He'll interrupt them and go, sorry, darling, or sorry, sweetheart. It's a, it's very infused. A lot of the conversations that Mike has with women is infused with disrespect and kind of condescension. It's it's funny to me, this conversation around whether men can use the word sweetheart or darling. And he did say in this interview that he feels like he can't use those words anymore. And, and what's the problem with saying them? I think I consider his use of sweetheart and darling in a similar vein to us calling someone cute. There's an inference, I think, that these people are smaller than us or inherently lesser than you. And I mean in the context of how he's using them. Like I will use dal all the time almost ironically, with everyone, my parents, my friends, male, female. You, sarcastic, never. Yeah, in a really sarcastic way. <laughs> it's not that the words are the issue, it's the context in which you use those words. And it doesn't seem like he, from the clips that I've seen and what you have told me, is using them in a way that proves he thinks every men and women are on the same level. No, not at all. And he did say to the Sydney Morning Herald that they are terms of endearment that only a couple of years ago were seen as legitimate but are now seen as something that's offensive. And it's funny because old mate Sonia Kruger jumped on Today Extra and said, I actually think he has a point. It would be hard to be a man in today's society. And then backed up the usage of men using sweetheart or dull with women. And this is the thing, right? Someone called me dull today. I went to a deli at a 
supermarket and the butcher said, hi, Dahl, what would you like? I take absolutely no offense to a man calling me Dahl in that situation. I have no offense when Mitch calls me, I don't know, he doesn't call me darling. Bubba is what you guys call each other, right? (laughs) You do. Are you not going to tell the listeners that? No, I call him um, babe. Bubba and Boo Boo, you guys call each other. Oh, shut up. Don't (laughs) spread that rumor because Mitch would actually die. Um, No, we don't call each other. I call him babe. But if he he was to call me dull, I wouldn't find that offensive or sexist. If I have a conversation with Mike Gunner and he interrupts me to say, listen, darling, or listen, dull, that is entirely different. The context there means that he's patronizing me. The other quotes that I found interesting in this story is him, A, saying, I'm speaking on behalf of all men in this country, which is just a little bit arrogant, <laughs> and that he added that some of the blame should be attributed to women with strong personalities who have undertones of toxic feminism. I think the most dangerous and scariest kinds of sexists in my life are the ones who don't outwardly seem misogynistic. They're the guys who have a firm idea of what a woman should be and what a woman should be like. And anyone who exists outside that prism is unruly and unattractive, which is Mm. kind of how, what he's pointing to a woman with a strong personality to him is, is inherently unattractive. Those men aren't the kind of people you walk past in the street and assume a sexist. And for that reason, they're the ones that scare me the most. And you know what it is? They're often so charming. So charming and polite and probably chivalrous. Well, I feel like the other thing I've been thinking is he seems like, for me, the most dangerous kind of guy for my friends to date because he hides behind the nice guy persona. And in some contexts, these guys are the nice guy in the room. And they are the most charming guy in the room, but they extend because in one context, they're a really nice guy. It should extend to all scenarios and all contexts and people should think that they're nice all the time. I feel like my friends have been ruined by this kind of guy who thinks they're a good guy because they're nice to a certain group of people, which are usually other men. God, yeah. And it normally takes you a month of knowing this person until you see them in certain scenarios, particularly in a conflict scenario where you realize that they're completely narcissistic with how they view the world and that they always think that they're right and the person they're arguing with must be wrong in every scenario. I do want to talk about Mike's inference that this is all to blame or to pin on PC society, which is his quote. Such a go-to. Because, oh, it's the favourite of white men today. But really, in my mind, a PC society just means a society when we actually give a shit about how women and minorities are treated. Yeah. I do not understand how we still wheel this out. Like, how dare we be politically correct and actually care about how we treat each other? It's just ludicrous how we have hijacked this term and made it so negative. Well, it's like it's like them saying, what the fuck? I'm not the center of everything anymore. And once again, I know I've quoted this quote. I know I've used this quote like three times in the last few months, but it, it sums up everything so perfectly. And it's that Lindy West quote where it's like, the world is bigger than you and it belongs to us too. Mm-hmm. It's that idea that we actually do have some ownership over space um, and time in this world. And we're only just starting to realize it. The way I think about this Um, with regards to women demanding more space and airtime in the last few years is the concept of, I guess, manspreading in that men are used to the space um, that they demand and women are only just realizing that they can push back and take back the space that was originally theirs. It was just taken from them in the first place. Agree. I do want to play devil's advocate just for a second because I actually also believe this. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance, which I feel like is our new buzzword, (laughs) cognitive dissonance. I do feel this at the same time. I... 
understand on some levels how it must be frustrating to hear the term white men thrown around as an umbrella term for a whole group of people because the fact of the matter is the rising notion, particularly on social media and online, that white men are automatically stupid or shouldn't be sharing their thoughts and feelings is a little bit ridiculous. Like that whole notion is stupid. And I think we often, I think you and I even have fallen into that in the past, using the term white men and oh, poor white men as definitely we have we have derided white men and i don't always actually agree with that i understand frustration with that sentiment particularly from white men because it's not like white men are a homogenous group with all the same opinions and beliefs and feelings but that said and i I do understand that we need to come at this with nuance as always that said i do reject the idea that it's more difficult to be a white man in 2019 and that white men suddenly have it so bad no they don't I I agree with you in that we we do throw that term around a lot, white men. I don't regret its use because, to be honest, every time we've probably used it, we've probably been angry. And when you're angry, you don't have the nuance that maybe the scenario deserves. But also I think anger serves its own purpose too. I, I think it's also important, like you said, to be realistic. If you've always had something one way, there's no denying that it is both confronting and jarring to have that taken from you. I would love men to listen to women and jump on our bandwagon straight away and understand that we don't want to take anything from them. We just want what's ours. Um, But I think the realistic approach of this is to understand that, that men will be threatened by that. And then if you have been given something or if you have sort of had one experience for a very long time, it's pretty hard to rewrite the rules in their entirety without people kind of, like I keep saying, getting their back up about it. So I think pragmatism is important in this scenario, but Sonia's wording, Sonia Kruger's wording was interesting to me that yes, we're living in a time that, that favors women over men, but not to overblown proportions. Like Mm. this is about recalibration. Mm. I also just flatly disagree with that because, and Mike did say men are now so emasculated that we can't speak our minds. (laughs) Disagree. Men can speak more about how they feel than ever. And I wholly believe that because the deconstruction of patriarchal norms or what the standard masculine male needs to look like is beneficial for men. The more that we tear down totally. this ideal of masculinity and the more we say that men can feel whatever they feel and voice those feelings and not be chastised for doing so means that men can speak about their lived experiences without having to do so through this prism of patriarchy it means that men can be open about mental illness it means that men can be open about their desire to be caregivers or family men or stay-at-home dads even it means so much to men feminism aids men so much because it means that they don't have to hold up this old archaic gross ideal that they need to be working and providing and that is all they should really care about well it means they can be whoever the fuck they want um which i think is the thing that we often forget in these conversations um i think they absolutely can speak their mind i just don't think they can break shit in the process and i think it's important that people learn the difference i did want to finish today on a quote from jr thorpe and bustle who wrote this in 2017 in the weeks after the me too movement began and she wrote 
I myself have had several conversations like this with men over the past two weeks, both men who identify as feminist allies and ones who don't. There's one aspect that seems to be pretty absent from their consideration. If you're feeling vigilant and wary of the opposite sex and are constantly monitoring your relationships with them in the workplace, on public transport and on the street, you're getting an insight into what women actually feel like. Wow. Nice, huh? That's so good. That's all we have time for. It is. Uh, Thank you all for listening. If you want to keep up with us during the week, we're starting to do more video stuff and photo stuff and whatever, much to Zara's dismay. We are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. Chuck us a follow and come follow us. It's a riot of a time. We've been struggling with our memes lately, Zara. We've been really, really off the ball. I love how you looped yourself into that because it's usually just me struggling with my memes, but you haven't had a great meme week, I must admit. For those who are new to the podcast, we do have a bit of a running competition where whenever we post a meme, we try to up the other one's last meme to get more likes and comments. And both of our memes, particularly mine recently, have been absolute shockers. Your defense. I always lose. So it's nice of you to just taste what my experience is like for the moment. Um, Otherwise, we will be back in your ears on Thursday. As we said last week, these conversations are happening weekly. So we will have a very special one in your ears on Thursday. We can't wait for you guys to hear who we've been speaking to and what we've got planned. So, yeah. Love you. Bye. Bye. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.